this week's episode, Evie Taven joined the podcast to discuss her personal journey dealing with some mental health issues, how she had the strength and fortitude to keep going, and what she's learned along the way. Hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Evie Taven, welcome to the Don't Worry About It podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm glad you reached out. We were able to connect and I'm really excited to kickstart kickstart back this podcast with with you and your incredible story. If you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself to us, who are you and uh, why you wanted to come on today? Yes. Yeah, so um, as you said, I'm Evie Taven. I am a teacher. I teach fourth grade in an integrated special ed class in a public school in Washington Heights, which is also where I live. Um, And I wanted to come on to this podcast since really since I um, since I first heard an episode and um, I I like to uh, phrase it this way. My qualifications for being here are anxiety, depression, ADHD, um, sensory processing disorder, specifically auditory. So fancy word for it is misophonia. Um, And then recently, um, I also was diagnosed with PTSD and OCD. Wow, there's a lot, a lot to get into. Um, where do you want to begin? Um, let's. I'm gonna start with kind of how, um, how this developed because it's been. It's not like all at once I was diagnosed with all of these things. Mm-hmm. It's more of a process. Right. When what was the um, I guess your first experience dealing with which one came first and and how old were you when? when it happened and what was that journey like? So initially um, I started therapy when I was in seventh grade um, because I really didn't know how to make and keep friends. And um, I had a wonderful relationship with my first therapist. And like, when I go back, um, I grew up in Dallas. So when I go back to Dallas to visit, um, we'll often like go out for coffee. Um, but she was a major source of support. And, um, as we were talking, you know, from seventh grade to 12th grade, um, the anxiety, depression and sensory came out. And then 12th grade was really when things got, um, intense I, that's when we really got the um, depression diagnosis. And that's when I started seeing a psychiatrist. Happens to be, I did not click with my first psychiatrist, but um, through lots of trial and error, um, I was able to um, I was able to find a medicine that worked that at least sort of worked for me. Um, and so that was, um, that was a really, really positive 
relationship um, and still is. And then, yep. So in 12th grade, that's when you finally got diagnosed with depression. Um, but before that, I assume you had been going through tough times as just because you're once you're diagnosed, obviously that had probably been going on for at least a little bit, if not an extended period of time. Would you mind walking me through that? Like when did you first start feeling those feelings and how did you end up getting to a place where you were able to get diagnosed and get the help that you needed? So, um, so right in the beginning, it was really just, um, I guess you'd characterize it as social anxiety, but manifesting in just not being able to relate with people my age. Um, I've always kind of, when I was little, I was always more adult than other people my age. And it made it very hard to connect. And I have my sister who's fantastic and she's a grade ahead, nearly two years older, but a grade ahead of me. So um, eighth grade, when she was in ninth grade at a different, so same campus, but a different side of it and really a different school. And 12th grade when she was spending a year in Israel were especially hard times, Mm -hmm. um, friends wise, because when she was in the same school as me, she let me hang out with her friends. Um, so earlier that, earlier, I would say probably end of 11th grade, um, my therapist brought up depression, asked if I thought I had it. And at that point, I didn't recognize it, wasn't ready to accept it. I'm not sure exactly what, but then she asked me again, um, October of 12th grade. And I said, yes, because I realized that that was exactly what was going on. And do you feel, was it comforting to at least get that diagnosis to finally get an understanding of what, of what you're feeling kind of being validated by a diagnosis and as well as just at least starting a treatment plan? So it did, um, in a way it was more, I mean, I didn't, click with my first psychiatrist and after I got back from um gap year in Israel the next year she and I I was starting college in New York she said you should find somebody closer to you as basically a way of saying I'm done dealing with you now um but it was um it was in a way comforting to know that um I was that you know there was a name for what I was going through but at the same time um in like middle school when I was having issues with friends my parents initial reaction was well everybody has that at some point um and that part was not comforting for me that um, I I say this a lot, like just because I'm in pain doesn't mean that I want other people to be in pain too. You know, when 
somebody shares that they're going through something similar, I, it's like, I want to say, hey, me too. But at the same time, I also, you know, think that it's terrible that somebody has to go through that. So it was a little bit mixed. Right. Well, it's one of those things where it's, it's comforting knowing that you're not the only one going through something, but in that joy is a a thing of understanding that the common, you know, the connection is through something that is miserable and that is extreme, that can be, and is extremely painful. Um, Such a, I mean, teenage years and just growing up in general, those years are really yeah really really hard and it's I mean some people got through it and I really do think that the best thing you can possibly do is get out is to get out of those teenage years and with with as least amount of trauma as possible grades regardless if you can get through that you can get through college or into college with a good with a good enough mental state and enough and and coping skills and stuff like and that I think that's just as valuable as a 4.0 GPA I just I've seen both both kids succeed. I've seen the ones who powered through and and got to college and experienced some really some really bad mental health issues. And I've seen the opposite where they, you know, they learned how to coping skills, they were able to do the grades and other that. But to be judged on those formative years forever can does take a toll on a lot of people. Um, and that journey to get through it is extensive. It is exhausting. It is painful, but it is when you can when you do find a way to get through it, you kind of have a much better understanding of a lot of it just wasn't your fault. Absolutely. And I think um, what you said there with um, said something about being with new people or in a different environment. And that's something growing up in a relatively small Jewish community with um, basically two choices of school. you ended up being with the same group from, I mean, we moved to Dallas when I was three. So from the time I was three until 12th grade, it was some of the same people in my class the entire time. And first impressions are important. And three-year-olds don't realize that. (laughs) Right. It's, it's very true. And it kind of, I want to kind of take this time to circle back to one of the first things you meant was that you really had a challenge with creating or maintaining friendships growing up. Um, was that something that just, you just couldn't, you weren't able to connect with people your age where you, I see, I, I have to assume that growing up in a really small Jewish community that like you said, limits the amount of new opportunities you have. If you do something at a young age, it's very hard, right? I grew up in the modern Orthodox Jewish community in the tri-state area there are a ton of schools, there are multiple options for camps that you can get a new opportunity to not necessarily recreate yourself, but you have opportunities if, if to change, to have some sort of start over. I have to assume in Dallas, once you, in that, those communities, it's very hard to, even harder to change perceptions. And to, if you blow, if you blow some friendships or make a mistake when you're 12, that will have a lasting impact on you, at least until you can get out for college. Right. You're a hundred percent, but also I had friendships, not just within the Mm. Orthodox community. Um, but still it, it was, it was a challenge. Right. It's, um, definitely a culture that I don't, I've never experienced yet. I I look forward to one day spending some time in Dallas. I've only heard good. I've heard a lot of good things about it, but 
it's definitely a different culture and struggling to maintain those friendships had to have, I mean, mentioned seventh graders when you were, when you started, um, started therapy and you started meds in 12th grade, getting out from that time, I guess, did you go to, was it straight to Israel? Was it, did you go to college? So um, I did, I spent a year in Israel and it was, I consider it kind of a transition. So um, meds wise and brain wise, I was getting things to a more manageable level. So I wasn't there yet, but it was a process. Um, And I didn't click with my first psychiatrist there. So I found a new one who really worked with me and took into account what I needed and was, as she said, not aggressive, just, what's the word she used? Just persistent. Um, And she really tried to help me in any way possible. Um, looking into kind of some of the side issues like ADHD and seeing if, you know, medicating that would help. In the end, it didn't. Um, I have, so since those, I don't know, maybe three months that she had me on ADHD medication, I have not gone back. I haven't wanted to. Um, I have other coping strategies as you can possibly see right now because we're on zoom I am knitting while we're talking so that's that's something that I do I also um I mean I I'm a I'm an elementary school teacher so I gesture I use my hands I have something to fiddle with in my hands and actually it in a way it helps me with my students because some of them need to fidget also and I'm not the teacher who says sit up straight in your seat with your feet on the floor I'm the one who says as long as you're doing your work you can be standing up you can be with one knee up you can you know have one leg on your chair and one leg in the next county like as long as you're doing your work whatever position you're in is fine um and I had teachers who didn't say it as explicitly as that but who realized that I was learning um, and didn't um, didn't comment when I needed to stand up and circle or when I needed to be fidgeting with things, having snacks in little pieces. Um, I call it fiddle food. Um, and yeah, so I, I very much appreciate the teachers that I had who kind of model for me being um, accepting and in very unobtrusive ways. So I teach in an integrated class, which means that some of my students have special needs and some don't. And I co-teach with a special education teacher. And God willing, in just a couple months, I'm going to just this semester, I'm going to be graduating with a master's in special ed. So very excited about that because that's something that I've wanted to do for a really long time. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. And like I give my kids 
things to fiddle with and I say, hey, you know, something like this works for me, try it out, see if it works for you. So I love being able to be that teacher. Um, who's I love that. As, as a kid who could always on his report cards and parent-teacher conferences couldn't sit still. Um, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. It's like, if you get your work done and you're not, as long as you're not distracting from other kids, why does the, if the, as, if the work's able to get done and I don't, I never understood why, if you need to stand, stand, you get your work if you're more productive standing. It doesn't, it allows you to access the information and you feel more comfortable to get your work done. It's just one of those things where I think we, you know, as kids, we put a lot of faith in authority figures. And now as young adults, we become, you were at the age where we, some of our teachers were at, or getting to the age we start learning more and you kind of understand that these authority figures didn't always know, you know, they were right, experimenting. Understanding has evolved as well in the general world, not just in the world of special ed, that, uh, I mean, how many offices have desks that can be made into standing right. desks. It's just, even in workplaces, it's good for you. Um, so, but like I was saying, so um, my gap year was a transition. So I do still have a few close friends who um, I made friends with in seminary, but mostly it was when I got to college, um, I went to Yeshiva University's Stern College for Women, and um, it was absolutely the perfect place for me. Um, there was what? a huge pool of friends to choose from. I could really be myself. I could let my inner Judaic studies nerd out and people appreciated it as opposed to that being something that kept people away in, um, in previous times. So what was the, I guess, the biggest switch? Was it something that you learned to do? Was it just being in a bigger pool, maturity growing up that changed how you were able to connect and to be able to um, create, maintain and grow healthy, strong relationships with people? I think it was a combination. Um, I, I mean, I think being out of the small and very definitive pool of my community was one big thing. Um, being around other people who appreciated my um, Tanakh nerdiness. I am a Bible nerd, 100%. It's and, a good read. It's a very good read. Yes. <laughs> I'm on my third full go-round and sort of, kind of-ish working on a commentary. So it, it's been on pause for a couple of years while I sort out how to work full-time, be in grad school part-time, and still take care of myself. Um. But at the same time, um, so it's, I met now my husband, um, our second month of school. So it was the first co-ed Shabbaton of the year. And um, I was in full on Judaic studies mode 
Judaic studies nerd mode. And instead of pushing people away, it attracted him to me. Um, so that was how I knew that he liked me for me, not for, I didn't have to put on a face. I didn't have to put up a facade. Um, even in the beginning, it was, I was me and he was himself. And I think that that's a really strong way to start a relationship. And we didn't get married until nearly four years later. So we had what for the Jewish world is a very long dating and engagement period, but because we met naturally and we were still kind of feeling things out, um, we went very slowly at the beginning, but already a year in to our relationship, we pretty much knew that we wanted to end up married. Well, and, it, I mean, and it's that's... worked. I mean, seven to eight years later, we're married. And it's incredible. Congratulations. I think something that you brought up, getting to that comfort zone where you can not even necessarily create the mask, but to date when somebody kind of sees you for your passions and when you get to be your organic, authentic self and somebody sees that, connects with it and relates with it over a shared I'm going to guess that your husband now back then dating also shared a passion for for the Torah and for Tanakh so it's something Absolutely. that you guys that's I mean that's a massive clearly it's obvious from just the way you speak about it the passion is there and running your own commentary is incredible connecting on such a big thing that and also with any religion in, in people's life it's it's especially when it's a pillar of it to be able to connect on that level and to be able to share that interest is something that will I think will always stand as a one of the three foundations of any I think any great relationship or a test for marriage is you know the philosophy behind it your philosophy on life your your religious standing and the three could be looks or miscellaneous but those two at least for me I've always learned uh, as the pillars of any relationship and to backtrack you know you're coming into this I know that we have a lot more to get into but you're going into that Shabbaton already talked about dealing with ADHD, anxiety, depression, uh, sensory, uh, and, and some other things. And now you're going from somebody who's in seventh grade, was struggling to make friends to 12th grade, was going on meds and what, within the next, going to Israel about 16 months, about 16 months later, maybe even less, you've now met, you were in a, a place enough where you could be yourself to meet your future husband. Yeah. Please, um, if I got any of that wrong, please correct me. No, that was 100%. And also college happens to be, um, I was actually out of consistent therapy for three years straight, which was the only time from seventh grade until now, I'm 27, that, um, and in case anybody is uh, keeping track in 22nd grade, um, just to make the math easier, um, so I, uh, so I've been, I started therapy 14 years ago and have been out of it for only three of those years. Um, and that was college. Wow. The just in college is when you stop therapy. Right. Wow. I mean, my I'm... last semester, things were getting crazy again. That mm -hmm. was the first time I was really experiencing panic attacks 
And so I used the resources available to me with the Yeshiva University Counseling Center, which I had been going to for psychiatry anyway. Um, and I um, went for therapy also, and it was, it was a really good match and it worked very well for me. And then once I graduated, um, my therapist from the counseling center recommended my next therapist who I also related to very well. Wow. That's an incredible process. Also, um, just the way you talk about it, for anyone who hasn't or has gone through can relate to this, the finding a psychiatrist and finding a therapist journey is extremely mentally exhausting. Finding someone that you connect with is really, really, really tough. I think I, I know personally for me, I think I've seen probably five, maybe six therapists in my life. I think I've only connected with one that I'm currently seeing and it's exhausting. The information dump for the first few sessions, just telling the story and going through it. It's kind of like, it's, it's very much a lot like dating, like yeah. you're feeling each other out. You're like wondering, is it going to be a waste of time? Am I going to go out? And it's like going out every, every first meeting is like a first date. Like, do I even, do I like, you're like reevaluating, can this person help me? Do I trust this person? And sometimes you go out for two, three dates or you have a few sessions. You're like, you don't feel comfortable. You never connect. And that's like, it's a little bit more expensive than for a few first dates. It's hundred could be hundreds of dollars down the drain just to find the next person. And that journey can get very exhausting. I know I've spoken with a lot of people who have, yeah. you know, at times have just given up, have taken a break from finding a therapist. They're like, I just, I can't, I can't go through it a lot. And I think that part, um, just to give some more context, uh, if you felt that yeah. similarly, that must've been really hard, especially the first time with the psychiatry, when, you know, they're altering your brain with different drugs. It's, that's a, that is, I know I, when I went through it, it was a really, it's a really tough time. Yeah. And really for me, the mark of a, good psychiatrist is one who trusts you to know yourself and that's something when I said it didn't click with certain psychiatrists it was because I would make a change based on what was happening in my body and in my brain that I I know myself and I know what's happening so I would either go up or go down on something and would be told off for it later when I didn't have contact information for the person. So I couldn't check it with them first. Um, and really with my, my current psychiatrist is amazing. I'll get back to that in a little bit, but again, you know, she, she trusts me to know myself and if I think something isn't working, then I will either go up or down based on what I think I need. And unless it's something that she thinks is dangerous, which has yet to happen, um, she will support me a hundred percent. That trust in yourself. I think the way you speak about that, she trusts you to me, the way it sounds is that you trust you, that you have confidence in yourself to know yourself has I get the sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you've at least at some point developed a strong inner confidence that you are very tuned with yourself, that you know yourself, and a lot of confidence in that. Has that was that something you've always had? Was that developed? Um, I think it developed later on. Um, I I feel like once I started getting out of the small pool of my community, not mm -hmm. to say anything against my community. I will, in the next part of this, go into how amazingly supportive they are 
um, when things go wrong, but I really do. Um, but I, I had to wear a mask there. There weren't other people like me. And so being in seminary in YU um, was really great for me in that I was with people who um, would share about themselves. Um, I was actually part of a club called Active Minds, which has chapters on um, university campuses around the country. And I spoke at their Stomp Out the Stigma event one year. Um, and at that point, I had a great you know, tie up message, everything was going well at that point, you know, and I had, I had a bunch of friends and I had, you know, then my boyfriend, now my husband. Um, so that, so in that speech, I was able to have a really good resolution. At this point, I don't have that resolution because things have come crashing right. back. But um, I was around people who would openly discuss mental health and that was really important for me. Yeah, I know we, we're going to, as we were about to transition into the second part, just from where we are now, you're the evolution, the, this, right, you're, this could be it of itself ending with a, if this was a movie, right, it would probably end with you dropping the mic at your active mind speech, the, the growth, the journey, coming into the confidence, coming into your own, and Unfortunately, life doesn't work that way. Life isn't isn't always a movie. And once and, and oftentimes when just when you think that you've got everything solved and everything together, um, the rug can can be can be pulled out. And and oh what an appropriate metaphor for my last year and a half. Um so you know, we're recording this in late October of 2021. Um, so the COVID pandemic started about a year and a half ago. And since a week or two before um, that hit New York City, um, I started getting spikes in my anxiety and um, I started getting panic attacks again. Um, and not sleeping through the night. I'm at this point, I, I've slept through the night a handful of times in the last year and a half. And sleep is so important for everything else. Um, and then really once quarantine began, um, I had a spike in my sensory issues as well. Um, and I, I cannot speak highly enough of my psychiatrist for being with me through it all. And jokes, we were right before the pandemic, I was about to start uh, lowering my doses of medication, possibly being able to have a child without frying said child's brain with um, neurotransmitter um inhibitors which at this point is my reality 
but then COVID happened and now going down on my medicine is a joke because it's not happening. We're desperately trying to find something that will make me just sleep through the night. Um, and that's, that's, you know, focus number one. We're not even close to be able to being able to say, all right, let's try to go down, see how it goes. Cause I'm not in that stable place right now. Right. That's, I, I mean, for those, those who know me well, know. I, I mean, I'm as well, I, I don't sleep through the night, um, ever really. Like if I get five, six hours, like recently 10, I fall asleep at 10, 10 30. I'm up by three, four. It's, it's, and it's the more time you're awake, the more you have time to think and the more it's, I really do believe sleep in, is like the cent, one, one of the center cores of the interweb that are, that, that make up our mental health matrix. Absolutely. Because when you're not sleeping, you're tired. And when you're tired, you're not yourself. And you might be using other things to combat the tiredness, whether it be um, caffeine or other medications that are uppers as opposed to downers and other things like that. And it starts to compound, right? When you're yeah. not sleeping and could be other things could affect your appetite, could affect your mood, which can, if you're not in a good mood, are you a delight to be around people, right? It's like one of those things that kind of like, once you knock that domino over, hit some other dominoes and everything can start to cascade and to tumble. And when you build your mental health on top of, you try and build a solid foundation, unfortunately, Sometimes I, th I think for me, at least my mental health can be turned into a solid foundation built out of solid wood and metal and great foundation blocks. And then one night can happen and it can feel like it's a house of cards and a little gust of wind can blow it over. Yeah, I, I, I'm really sorry to hear that I can 100% relate to you on that. Um, it's, I've been having some other health issues right. as well. And um, my doctors have been saying, yeah, you know, it's probably because you're under so much stress. stress. So, you know, if we lower the stress, then you should be fine. And I'm like, great. Got any ideas on how to do that? Right. Then it becomes stress. The stress becomes about, about dealing with stress because you're unsuccessful. The more, the more effort, the more time, the more energy, the more resources you use to, to try and fix something where that can sometimes that can start to feel unfixable. Yeah. It takes a toll. Definitely. Um, Sorry, I, I didn't mean to. Uh, I didn't mean to sidetrack there. You were. We were. I just want to. I want to give you the opportunity to to continue. Um, just talking. You mentioned right before the pandemic, you were looking to take off your. You were looking to try and potentially taper off certain medication to lower dosage. Um, and then pandemic hits. Your thank, and, thankfully, your, your psychiatrist was still, you know, able to. To help, I know a lot of people, the resources and mental health with the therapist and the psychiatrist they didn't have access. Right. So I was very lucky in terms of um, I'm fine with Zoom therapy. Um, I mean, I, I'm a teacher. I had to switch in a week to teaching online. Um, and actually, last year I taught remotely the whole year. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a big change. I met my new therapist in person for the first time, maybe a month ago. Um, 
So, and I'll get to switching therapists in a couple minutes, but, um, but that was, um, but yeah, it's, it's, I'm really, really blessed to have a psychiatrist who I trust, who my husband trusts because we both see her. Um, and she's just amazing and really willing to do anything to make sure that her patients are doing the best that they possibly can. And that's huge. Yeah, to, to have that confidence in that relationship with a therapist is I think so valuable to have, especially when you're, I don't know, it's like one of those things where like, even when you're in like the good weeks where you know, your therapy sessions can feel kind of like you're going over some th certain things, working towards some goals, but when shit hits the fan, to know that you have that bedrock of a relationship, that you have that utmost confidence and faith in the therapist and then that trust is everything. Right. So that, that I absolutely, I mean, I did have, and then I switched therapists and now I have again, which is amazing. Um, but I just, I realized that I mentioned something offhand mm -hmm. that I hadn't said before, um, so I met my husband and we were, I would say slowly dating. We saw each other about once a week because um, we're on opposite sides of Manhattan and right. both trying to juggle full course loads and, you know, trying mm -hmm. to be ourselves. And a lot of my courses were education courses. So they included field work. So that too, mm -hmm. um, and I think it was around, we met in late October and um, we went out first mid-November. And I think it was, it was either March or May. I get those months confused all the time because they're short words that start with M and that's just how my mind works. I don't come with a calendar hardwired, but I decided that I was enjoying um, you know, spending time with him, I was seeing that like this was really working for both of us. And I was like, okay, we can't go forward unless you know about my brain. So, I mean, the, the Jewish laws make certain things quite complicated and having a very private conversation when you're dating is one of them. So this, um, for this conversation, we were just circling the block right. of my dorm um, because people passing you on the street, you know, can hear a yeah. word or two if they're listening, but generally they aren't. Um, so we were walking around that block, just circling. And I was telling my husband about my brain and he so I, I finished, you know, he asked some clarifying questions. Mm -hmm. I told him a little bit more. And then I was floored because he said, oh, me too. <laughs> and I was like, I am so not prepared for this, but okay, tell me more. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was the first that I heard um, that he 
also struggles with um with some mental illnesses and I needed a little bit of time to process that and kind of had to have Mm -hmm. him repeat what he had said then because I kind of I tend if I've like shared a lot I tend to and like it's it's emotionally draining I tend to kind of blank out afterwards um so I'm to this day not totally sure what he talked about but (laughs) I remember one small detail distinctively but other than that um but it was just such an aha moment of wow we hide behind these masks and behind these masks we could be totally the same it's interesting you use the word masks i mean i think i think when talking about these issues with other people we have to be always have to be mindful that not everyone's on the same page and everyone has different comfortability but it is interesting i'm gonna guess that when you were gathering the courage to finally open up and to tell him it was probably very anxiety inducing to figure out picking the right words to use and how to do it. And I'm going to guess in all the scenarios and probabilities that you played in your head was him saying me too, one of them. Definitely not. Um, But we mostly, except for a very few times we've only one of us been in crisis at a time Mm. so we can support each other through whatever's going on um there have been a handful of times when we've both been overwhelmed and kind of shutting down and have to stay sort of conscious and in that space of giving at least a little bit so that we can both have our needs met um, sounds like the foundation of a great relationship. We try. We try. It's great. And so now we're at the point in your, correct me if I'm wrong, where active minds, you give the speech, transferring over, crisis, COVID, therapy, what happens next? Um, so in respectively August of 2020 and December of 2020, Uh, So August, my father died and um, December, my mother died. So one thing to say about this, cancer sucks. Um, My dad was sick for about a year and a half. um, But the last three weeks or so, it got particularly bad. And then my mom didn't know that she had it until... um, she she went into the hospital two days after um, we got up from Shiva. So after the the seven day mourning period for my father, um, two days later she went to her doctor for some weird symptoms that she had realized. You know she'd noticed them, but she was busy taking care of my father, so she thought that they were stress induced or you know, she'd just gotten a checkup, so they didn't think anything of what, um, what was going on, and so she went to the hospital just for observation, so that they could figure out what was going on, um, two days after, right, two days after we got up from Shiva, and she did not come back home, 
So Cantor absolutely sucks. No, whether you have lots of time leading up to process it or whether you don't, that, that, that's really all I can say. Um, and at the time, um, you know, with my, with my dad's Shiva friends were asking like, oh, what can I do? You know, I don't know what to do. Is there anything I can do? And I'm like, if you have children, send me pictures of cute babies. That is what I need. And um, so my, my father um, was alive for long enough to hear that my sister was expecting. And my mom almost lived to see the baby, um, but just classic my mom, um, the oncologist who she had worked with um, for my dad and then who was the oncologist for her and got to know the family very well. My sister and brother-in-law, they live in Boston, but they actually went back to Dallas for about two and a half months to take care of my mom. And um, he said, you know, I, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but I'm not sure that you're going to be able to see the baby. Um, I'm not sure you're, you're going to be alive to see the baby. And as they're um, wheeling her bed in like towards the ICU for, um, and then she came out of the ICU afterwards, but died a couple of days later, um, she turned to the doctor and said, I'm going to prove you wrong. That's just who my mother was. Um, and I mean, I, it's really hard. Like I still haven't totally processed everything. I had a very complicated relationship with my father and a very close relationship with my mother. And both of those make the morning process complicated. And, um, and the outward morning process, the, like the, um, the Jewish process includes saying Kaddish. Now I probably would anyway, cause that's just who I am, but I don't have any brothers. It's just me and my sister. Um, so, and my sister was pregnant and then had the baby um, who is absolutely adorable and named for my father, um, and just makes me smile all the time. And, um, so I was really the primary one going to Shoal every day and saying Kaddish and being a gasp woman doing this, um, caused a lot of complication and a lot of its own stresses. Right. Um, not to go too much into that and implicate too many people and institutions that I have respect for. Um, but it's really hard to be told one thing and have the reality on the ground be something else. Um, but another thing that I learned about myself um, from my parents' deaths is that 
you've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed, but I have not said the word lost. I have not said passed away. No, they died. I'm very much like straight to the point. People say, oh, you lost your parents. I'm like, no, I know exactly where they are. Happens to be underground, but I know exactly where they are. Um, and that that's just the type of humor that's gotten me through this. Um, and uh, so I guess the first really, for the first three, four months of quarantine, I was still seeing um, the therapist who had been recommended to me by the counseling center. We had good rapport, you know, we clicked, um, but my graduate school schedule changed and because of COVID and it being more convenient to stay in therapy and people had more reasons to be in therapy, I had to give up my slot and didn't get another set slot. So it could be, I would see her, you know, with the week in between, it could be, I would see her with six weeks in between and there was no telling what was what. And I was at that point very much like reeling from the death of my father. And then really quickly, then my mother got sick and I couldn't deal with the uncertainty of not knowing if and when I would have therapy. So I made a really tough decision to leave somebody who I was comfortable with and, um, and switch. And I, at the time I thought it was, you know, the worst thing I'm like, not, you know, I'm using, I'm going from somebody who I know to somebody who I don't know when things are in such turmoil. And, um, but in the end, it's been the best thing that could have ever happened. Um, <laughs> earlier, you were mentioning that um, interviewing or like going through the first couple sessions with a therapist is kind of like very expensive first dates. Um, and I actually did not have that with uh, my current therapist because I saw him once when I was still in New York. And um, my second appointment, I was in Dallas because they had uh, my aunt who was there, who was taking care of my mom said like, I know you have plans to come for winter break, but you, you really need to come sooner. Um, so I switched my ticket and I came and I got off the phone. Well, my, the first couple of sentences of my second appointment with my new therapist were, okay, I'm going to need a minute. I just got off the phone with my aunt, my sister and the palliative care team. And we decided to put my mom on comfort care only. So that's what's going on in my life. You don't really know me, but hi. Right. Um, and, but this is, it's, it's such a good match. Um, he appreciates my 
snark and compliments my gallows humor um, and response in kind. Um, and just, and it also, I think you've discussed this on other episodes, um, but it's important. I, I think you had said that this was important to you. It's important to me too. Um, he is religious and I would not have been able to get through talking about all the like Kaddish mishaps that happened if I had to explain every time what it was and why I'm saying it and why people expect me not to be saying it and make and make trouble um about it so that's um that's been a blessing and we just click and because he has not known me for as long um he notices things that I that like I never put together before so when I was talking about my diagnoses earlier and I had I had said that um I was um recently diagnosed with um OCD and PTSD that was because of my new therapist um just seeing things and seeing things in a bit of a different way than other people than other people who had known me for longer and like watched the development and kind of I kind of liken it to the difference between stairs and a ramp. If you're on a ramp, if you're going down a ramp, it's hard to tell where you are. But if you're going downstairs, you know where you stand. Um, and for me, this has been like a big landing and set of stairs. And it's, I've been open to more possibilities. Um, and I think it's partially what, um, it's partially like our relationship and partially that now I'm in, I'm at a point where I recognize that, you know, things should be changing. So instead of being as, as terrified of change, um, I realize that things need to change if I'm going to get better because things are not working for me the way they are now. Um, but specifically with my new therapist, who's phenomenal, um, he, his MO, you know, the way he operates is that if something is getting to be too much, we'll table it and talk about something else. And especially in the beginning now, like we've gone weeks without tabling things because I do want to work through it. But especially in the beginning when we're just getting to know each other um, and things were very stressful, you know, trying to explain what was going on. Um, so he, um, his thing was like, okay, 
we can table that. We can come back to it later. Like, is there something else you want to talk about? And that openness, um, there was, there was a specific topic that I didn't want to go into that he kept circling back to. So I was able to say, all right, I need to table this for at least two weeks after that. If we need to come back to it, we can. And that was really the first time that I was able to speak up for myself in therapy that way and not just go with what my therapist was saying. Um, and it's kind of led me to be not as, <laughs> here comes not as, again, but not as terrified of people um, because my default is I am scared of somebody until I'm not. <laughs> um, so like right now I have a really good relationship with the principal of my school. So she's my boss. Um, so I have a really good relationship with her. I stopped being scared of her. This is my fifth year there. So I stopped being scared of her like three and a half years ago, um, which is why I was very happy when she went from assistant principal to principal because I never got over my fear of the principal. Um, and um, in terms of the OCD, I had always, um, I had known for a, a long time that I had compulsions, um, but there was no obsession attached to them. So um, I'm a skin picker. No, I don't want that to define me. I pick at my skin. There we go. Much better. Person-centered language. Woohoo. Special ed. Um, I, so I, I pick at my skin. Um, so that was a compulsion without an obsession to go with it. So I, um, so I thought that I really only had the compulsions. And that I had known also since high school. Um, but I, at some point in therapy was talking about, um, arbitrary rules that I make for myself. And I made a whole, <laughs> David, you'll appreciate this because I made one for this podcast as well, but I made a whole map, uh, very organized of all the arbitrary rules. And I, underneath them, I put what cognitive distortion I thought was behind them and so he very politely asked can I say something I'm like yep that that is why I'm here and not talking to myself or to a rubber duck um and he said to me this is OCD and I was like okay just have to clarify the map or the contents of the map because it was color-coded it was very neatly organized um but it was it was the contents it was arbitrary rules are OCD you make rules for yourself so that x doesn't happen right. and go through with that and it made so much sense um and that was really like a good moment for me of like you know, you're right. You're totally right. And the same thing with the PTSD diagnosis. He had asked if it was because of a specific trauma. 
And I was like, I know it's not that, but you know, we're in the last five minutes of the session. So we're not going to start trying to figure out what it is. But by the next week I was like, okay, here's what it is. Um, Let's work with this. And so that was definitely something that I could not see myself doing a couple of years ago. Um, You've had just a hell of a year and a half. uh, That's putting it mildly. I don't know. Like, I mean, as I I just, I sat, sat here just listening. I I just, I didn't know what to say for, for a lot of it. And and just the one thought that keep popping, kept coming into my head was, I don't know how you're still standing. COVID itself. COVID. My therapist has said that on various occasions too. I mean, COVID itself was COVID in its own right has warped change everybody like almost everybody's had some something happened to them during covid and to go through covid especially when feeling knocking out routine is routine for a lot of people is everything covid destroyed routine it changed the way you worked on a daily basis to deal with parents two parents let alone one parent is an unbelievable tragedy and 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 to lose a parent and then to six months later lose a parent and not even cracking into that top three is dealing with a sick parent and, and, and the emotional toll and, and having, having family, you know, having parent, um, one of them at least being in Dallas while you're in New York, not being able to, not being able to be with them while also balancing and managing your own life is enough to make anybody collapse, to lose it, whatever euphemism, whatever word, whatever term you want to use is, is enough. And I don't know how you're still standing. And yet listening to you speak about it, I, I, I now can understand how you are. Um, your ability to, your ability to, to understand, and I think it's the, the confidence in yourself, the trust in yourself to, from my, just from my perspective, just seems like that finding your voice and continuing that journey of having the confidence in what you are and what you aren't, who you are and who you are and what you can what you can do now and what you're not able to do yet. Um, the specificity that you use in the language and your words, and I encourage everyone listening to really focus on the language that you use. The one time you even had to, you corrected yourself to specifically change the terminology. It's these systems, these coping mechanisms. It's years and years of thought, of thinking. It's years and years of work in therapy with psychiatry and not most of yourself just doing, putting in work to get to yourself to a place. And now, I'm very sure without knowing that you have bad days that I'm sure you go through times where it doesn't all seem, doesn't all seem to be working, but the your ability to get up and to fight and to continue working on it. I, losing a therapist for most people, a lot of people might just say, I, I don't need this anymore, but your ability to say, I know I need this to continue doing this, to continue moving on, to continue processing. And you mentioned, you said, I don't know that you haven't totally processed it. I, I don't know if you, could possibly even begin to start processing the loss, the pain, the suffering, all of it. It's not, I don't, I don't know if you possibly healthily could in, in only 18 months. Right. You know, it has to come in its own time and people have been telling me that and it didn't sink in at first, but at this point it's definitely like, you know what? I have to do this at my own pace. I can't, dictate for my brain what that pace is going to be um and 
I need to do what I need to do to get through, you know, to keep going to school every day and putting a smile on happens to be teaching makes me very happy. So I am able to like unconsciously just push everything that's happening outside out of my mind um, when I'm with students, which is amazing. Um, it's, it's a really, like, it's a gift to have a job that you can do that, um, where you just, as much as they drive you nuts, you absolutely love them. Um, and that, that's how I feel about my students. Um, but yeah, you know, once school ends, it, it's a major as you were saying, it's really hard to be functional. It's really hard. I mean, people have a really hard time functioning without any specific major trauma, but to, to function with the loss of not one, but two parents. I, I have to assume that the shiva process during COVID probably wasn't ideal either, where you couldn't have people, maybe everybody physically doing it, having to be in Dallas, friends in New York. So actually that um worked out better for me because I can't stand lots of noise right with the sensory yeah the sensory um so for me zoom shiva was actually ideal the less ideal part was then having to go out to go to shul to Mm. say Kaddish um so you know, there's pluses and minuses happens to be like the way that I scheduled it for, I like to say my people, um, is I had specific times and I had slots for two people at a time. So sometimes like it would be two couples, but I had like sign up for two people at a time because that was as much as I could deal with. Um, so I was really able to control the environment in a way that I couldn't have done in person. So that worked well for me. Um, but then, you know, community Zooms, I basically got through it by being an elementary school teacher. It's like, oh, I noticed that you're here and haven't said anything yet. Do you have anything that you want to share? Which is something that you know, do you have anything you want to share is something that I say multiple times a day at work. Um, and I was, uh, I was texting my sister one of the days of my mom's shiva. And I was like, I'm so done with humans. <laughs> and then I, that was the first day that I did that on the, um, the shul shiva zoom. And afterwards, my sister texted me and she was like, how did you do that when you can't deal with humans? And I'm like, clearly by treating them like fourth graders. Right. Well, it's about figuring out the best way for you to communicate and and just to get, just to find a way to get through it. Exactly. And I feel like find a way to get through it is kind of the theme of my life at the moment. And, you know some days better than others. I have wonderful friends, 
like a really strong support system. I have my psychiatrist and my therapist and um, actually for unrelated, for things that I'm not going to get into to other therapists. So I have a really good foundation. I have who to turn to um, if I need to. And I actually, I am blessed and sometimes cursed, but definitely blessed to have a best friend who basically shares my brain. Um, we were roommates one summer. Um, we were taking summer classes in YU and my sister came, just came to visit because she was visiting her now in-laws, um, then her boyfriend's parents in, and they live on Long Island. So she came into Manhattan to see me for a little while. And as we were walking, you know, I was walking her back to the train and she just kind of turned to me and said, is it weird to live with another one of you? Because <laughs> we, I mean, just like personality wise, but also like we share almost all of our diagnoses, except she has it like a step, a step beyond what I have. Um, and we have the same allergies. We have the same, like, we, and we just get each other. So that's also a huge, um, that was a huge factor, you know, in um, navigating YU. And she was there my last year. I was, well, I graduated in January. So she was there my last year and a half. Um, and that was, again, a huge help. And I guess to kind of take us, we did the, before we're doing, we did the, the, the beginning, middle, I guess I want to call this, I guess, interesting enough, the end, I would call it the, the where are we now? Today, right now in this moment or in, in your time in life, where, where do you stand? Um, I mean, still waiting for the ability to sleep. Um, still getting fairly frequent panic attacks. Um, but I also have, I have coping strategies. I have people I can reach out to. So I'm definitely in a better place than I could be. Mm -hmm. um, I have a very strong support system and that's amazing. Um, but really it's the sleep portion that's, messing everything up and so hopefully there's one option that only opened to me very very recently but hopefully something with that option will work um there's always hoping there's all there's always hoping is absolutely true um somehow some way you still have that hope and it's unbelievable I mean, everything about 
you is unbelievably inspiring to me. And I, I'm sure anybody who listens or knows you is incredibly inspired for you. I, I, I'm very confident in saying that I don't think, I think you know, but I don't think you truly know how strong and incredibly powerful you are. And I'm just very grateful to you for, for reaching out to me and, and for allowing me to be a part of sharing your journey and your story. That's obviously ongoing and continuing. Um, you always, always have an open spot on, on this podcast. If you ever want to come back, uh, things Thanks. you want to talk about, I do want to just now give you the, give you like I, I try and do for everyone, give you the final, is there a final takeaway, something lasting message, something we didn't get to get into that you wanted to bring up? Yes. Um, I know the structure of the podcast and very recently something um, reminded me of this and I was like, yes, this will be my final takeaway. Um, and this is something that I've been saying for years um, and something that I entirely believe, though at times have trouble practicing. And it's that the concept of normal does not exist. And trying to be, quote, normal just leads to frustration. Be yourself. And it's really, really hard because before you can be yourself, you have to, before you can be yourself to other people, you have to be yourself to yourself and accept that. But there is no perfect person. Nobody... Everybody is dealing with something and trying to make your life look picture perfect hides a lot of um, dysfunction under the surface. So trying to make the inside reflect the outside, give yourself the, give yourself the permission really to be who you are not who you think other people think you should be, um, is huge. And um, so I, I really try to avoid saying normal. And the other word that I really try to avoid is should. When somebody says should in the context of, you know, health, mental health, it's like should's a funny word. It appears in the dictionary, nowhere else. Um, and looking at what could be or what you think you should be capable of just doesn't, doesn't, it leads to looking back and looking forward rather than staying in the present. And so if I had to leave everybody with one message. It's normal doesn't exist. Don't try to pursue it. Be you because you are fantastic. Unbelievable. Um, Evie, thank you so much for, for coming onto the podcast. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Thank you so much to Evie for coming onto the podcast. 
I know I found that conversation to be incredibly moving, incredibly powerful, informative, and I took a lot of it. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. If anybody out there is interested in coming on to the podcast, please reach out at don't worry about a podcast at gmail.com. You can reach us that through our social media pages at don't worry about it podcast on Facebook, Instagram. And if anybody out there has any topics, people, suggestions to reach out to and to cover, please let me know as well. Looking forward to putting out some more episodes again in the future. Thank you guys so much for listening and hopefully I'll see you soon.